there will be conflict, mm -hmm. but we know that there are ways to manage, to prevent, to resolve conflict so that it doesn't become violent. If you watch the news as closely as I do, and let's face it, if you listen to this podcast, I'm guessing there's a pretty good chance you do, it'd be pretty easy to get discouraged by the constant barrage of conflict and violence we're subjected to every day in high definition. I'm hoping today's guest might provide a bit of an antidote to that sentiment, and perhaps even inspire some hope that, by and large, we're moving in the right direction. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and joining us today is Nancy Lindborg, president of the U.S. Institute of Peace and an HKS alumna. Nancy, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. World peace, although obviously admirable, is usually mocked as trite and naive. Uh, yet that hasn't stopped you from an earnest pursuit of, of peace, global peace initiatives, throughout your career. Um, what has made you stick with it? Well, earnest but very practical pursuit of peace. And I think it, the, personally I've stuck with it because over and over again for the past 25 years, even though I go to lots of places that are in terrible shape, you also see the extraordinary power of people coming together to chart a more peaceful path forward. And, you know, I have been very struck by the fact that even though we currently, over the last, say, half a decade, five, six years, are seeing an uptick in global violent conflict and terrorism, uh, certainly displacement as we see refugee and migrants uh, reaching historic levels. It's against a backdrop of 70 years of relentless progress, of uh, the rates of violent conflict almost flatlining as interstate conflict has become less and less. So, so what we're looking at now is a different kind of conflict and violence, and it, and it takes a different kind of practical application of tools and skills and policies. Is that uptick is that real? Are we actually seeing more conflict now? Or is it just that we have, you know, cell phones and videos and, and direct access to um, everything that's happening all across the globe? Well, there is uh, a scholar named Steven Pinker who has looked a lot at the data that actually indicates a, a, a positive trend for the last 70 years in deaths from violent conflict. And that's, of course, coming off of the high of the world wars. So what we, but, but interstate conflict has become increasingly rare. And so what we're seeing again are the kind of intrastate conflicts that happen in weak and fragile states mm -hmm. and driven by conflicts like Syria and Iraq. Yemen, you know, with with what's been going on in the Middle East, mm -hmm. so it's a it 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 is going up. Um, why it matters to us globally is exactly the reasons that you said. We are far more interconnected. Uh, there are, you know, the number of mobile devices per person globally uh, is at an extraordinary high. Um, but I, you know, another point on this practical pursuit of peace is that U.S. Institute of Peace was founded 32 years ago by Congress, specifically 
to have an independent federal institution that was looking for the practical applications to resolve and prevent violent conflict. And it's predicated on the notion that there will always be conflict, but the question is, what are the tools and approaches to manage it so it doesn't become violent and resolve it when it does? Because we see that conflict can, in fact, be transformative mm -hmm. if you are able to manage it the way we have in this country through a lot of big shifts, movements that have changed who we are as a nation, but enabled us to not dissolve into chaos and violence. I can imagine a lot of people ask you, isn't it human nature just that we're always going to fight? Um, do you constantly struggle with that? Well, I would agree that there will always be conflict, um, that then you would be moving into some kind of utopic view that would be harder to defend. There will be conflict, mm -hmm. but we know that there are ways to manage, to prevent, to resolve conflict so that it doesn't become violent. Mm -hmm. And that is where there is this opportunity to look at very specific tools, dialogue, negotiation, mediations, approaches, frameworks uh, for bringing people together. And, and it's even more important now in this interconnected world because it's not just the domain of diplomats anymore. It's mm -hmm. not just state to state that is responsible for building peace. And at U.S. Institute of Peace, we actually spend a lot of time looking at how do you build peace from the ground up. Mm -hmm. we, we have teams and partners in about 12 countries around the world where we are actually looking at how peace can be uh, practical and possible. Mm -hmm. Now, can you take us back to 1984 when the U.S. Institute of Peace was first established? Um, obviously, middle of the Cold War, Ronald Reagan is president. You have nuclear ra arms race. You have all sorts of uh, things happening at the time. Um, yet Congress decides to put funding towards this uh, new initiative. Uh, what was the reasoning for it? And were there preceding efforts that kind of uh, seeded the idea? Yes. In fact, uh, USIP was founded uh, as a result of um, a, a determined group of citizen activists who organized over a number of years uh, around the idea of uh, a peace department or a peace academy. And it garnered bipartisan support and really important champions on the Hill, people like Senator Mark Hatfield or uh, Matsunuga. Um, uh, a, a group of people who championed it on the Hill, f turned it into legislation, uh, which passed, and then President Reagan signed it into law. And it, over the 32-year history, it has evolved as the understanding of global threats and uh, where the greatest opportunities to and needs for building peace have evolved. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, my conception of the U.S. Institute of Peace, it seems like it breaks down to kind of research, education, and intervention. Is that, is that a good description, do you think, of the way that you approach peace and, and you know, uh, ending conflict? Yes. It's looking at that virtual cycle of uh, actual practice programs in conflict-affected areas mm -hmm. and bringing those lessons and the evidence 
from those experiences into research and training. We have a whole academy and feeding that into policy. How does that enable policymakers to make different and better decisions. And we have a lot of convenings um, in, in Washington, D.C., bringing people from different perspectives together d- across various divides uh, to examine issues and come up with new solutions. Mm-hmm. What kind of tools have you found are the most effective? Are they things that we never would have thought of before? Or are they things that are, well, we they were so simple, we should have been doing them the whole time? Well, some of them are there's a whole variety of tools, and mm-hmm. some of them are tried and true tools that are adapted for that context. Others are using new technologies that are now available. But let me give you a couple of examples. Um, we, for about eight years, have been training and supporting a network of Iraqi facilitators. So the ways to d- uh, map a conflict, to design a dialogue, and they have been conducting dialogues to resolve conflicts in Iraq uh, over those years. This became particularly urgent as we are looking at areas newly liberated from ISIL, Hmm. where the social fabric has been so torn apart. There is a pressing need to look at bringing people together so that it doesn't turn into additional cycles of violence after they're liberated. so in Tikrit, in uh, Saladin province, uh, these facilitators worked with Shia and Sunni tribal leaders to chart a way forward after Daesh or ISIL was cleared. They ended up signing a peace agreement and coming up with a way to vet people who wanted to return, who had fled the city. Um, and as a result, one-third of all people who have returned to their homes in Iraq are in that area because the tribal leaders came up with a peace agreement at that local level that enabled them to avoid additional conflict. That's application of a very extensive conflict mapping and set of negotiations that went on over a matter of months. Mm -hmm. We're now doing that in the Mosul context, which is far more complicated, but is so urgent because once that fighting stops, the the potential for new violence to break out is quite high. Mm-hmm. And it is critical that that kind of reconciliation process go forward so that you don't go into new spirals of conflict. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, what's happening in Iraq right now is uh, in the wake of the American 2003 invasion of Iraq. Do you find yourself involved in conflicts that aren't necessarily connected to the uh, you know, United States military? Yes, absolutely. Um, we are very involved uh, in the Columbia Peace Accord. Uh, We've had people working to help make that um, a very inclusive process, bringing uh, women's groups, uh, some of the conflict-affected, displaced, uh, what self-called victims groups to the table uh, for that process over the last few years and enabled them to really be a part of designing some of the key aspects of of those peace accords. And yes, they they failed the plebiscite, but I am among those who are confident that they will 
find peace eventually. Mm -hmm. Um, I just got back from Central Africa Republic two weeks ago where we have a team on the ground working um, at the, to connect community level dialogue with government level policymakers. Uh, at a very, very important time of transition. They've gone from terrible violence through a transition government. Now they have a new president. Um, this is where it is so important that they are able to break old patterns of elite power who doesn't talk mm -hmm. to any members of the community and a lot of divides that need to be bridged, uh, both ethnic and religious and farmer, herder, kind of divide. So now is where the real hard work begins mm -hmm. in, in Central Africa Republic. Do you find that when you're going into places, whether there's already an American presence or not, um, do you find that it there's skepticism about the United States' role in actually promoting peace? You know, I, I think for the most part, uh, we've been well received because we are about equipping and supporting local actors uh, work for the peace they envision. And relationships and results usually speak for themselves. And that's really the, the approach that we take mm -hmm. um, when we're working overseas. So it's the Iraqi facilitators who are helping local leaders find what will work for them as opposed to some solution that we've come up with. Sure. Um, and that, that becomes, that becomes, you know, the basis of, of the work and of the relationships that we have. Mm -hmm. Why is it important for the United States to be undertaking this kind of mission as opposed to doing it um, from a more international uh, perspective, I suppose? Well, part of our charter is actually to serve as a visible representation of the American public's commitment to building peace, to looking at practical ways to build peace, mm -hmm. um, and to study how to do that with, with, you know, we have a lot of institutions that are dedicated to the study of war. And the first decade of USIP was actually dedicated to standing up the field of peace studies in many universities around the, uh, the country. Um, George Mason University, um, you know, even I think Tufts, mm -hmm. uh, 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 George Washington University are just some of the few that have very vibrant peace studies programs now. Mm -hmm. A lot of that was seeded with support to scholars um, and research in that first decade of, of USIP's existence. And we're actually doing that now overseas in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan, working with universities to develop curricula for peace studies programs. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's a part of our charter, and we also reach out across the country. We work uh, U.S. We work with schools. Um, community organizations uh, on peace education in our own country so that people understand this is not just, you know, some pie in the sky, utopic ideal that you can't take seriously, but that this is actually, this is practical, mm -hmm. this, is, this is possible, and it is essential for our national and international security that we figure out how to address 
conflict so it doesn't become violent. It's, it's, it's actually very specific and very real. Mm-hmm. Do you find that you're often going into uh, places where conflict are, are, is already happening? Or have you been able to develop uh, tools to identify where conflict might happen, where there's trouble brewing, so to speak, and address it, hopefully, before it, it erupts into, you know, something that could go as poorly as uh, in Syria. Yes. And in fact, um, you know, I invite you and listeners to go to the USIP website to look at the recently released fragility report that we did with the Carnegie Endowment for Peace and uh, the Center for New American Security, which set, which really looks at this issue of state fragility as one of the reasons why we're having this uptick in violent death and uh, increase in refugees and increase in violent extremism. There's a correlation between how fragile a state is with those uh, those key mm-hmm. th- threats to global peace. And by fragility, we mean that there is a broken social compact between a state and its citizens. So it can be a lack of capacity. It could also be a lack of legitimacy, which is certainly what we saw throughout the Middle East, uh, where regimes that seemed strong rapidly crumbled because citizens did not trust their government. There were exclusionary practices with segments of the population not involved. So there are a number of indices that exist that rank states on uh, uh, indicators related to social, economic, security, political factors. And you can look and see those states that are ranked the most fragile are already highly correlated with sources of refugees, incidents of violent terrorism, renewed civil war and conflict. And one of the points of this study group report was to make recommendations for the next administration about how to organize the the United States to more effectively get upstream of crises. Mm -hmm. Because we are very crisis-driven right now, very reliant on very costly reactive approaches, military response, peacekeepers, huge need for humanitarian assistance, very expensive, both in, in human life and in, in dollars. Mm-hmm. And if we could get more focused on prevention, on looking at how to effectively help that conflict be resolved without violence upstream, mm-hmm. it's in everybody's interest. Nancy Lindborg is president of the U.S. Institute of Peace. You can uh, find the Fragility Report as well as just a link to the USIP's website uh, in the show notes. Nancy, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Good to be here. HKS PolicyCast is a production of Harvard Kennedy School. It's produced by Matt Cadwallader, along with Natalie Montaner, Sarah Abrams, and Becky Wickle, with help from Catherine Serafin on distribution. You can follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast, or find links to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. See you next week.